this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. On the Relax Back UK show we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. Hi, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show. And I really do mean that. On UK Health Radio, there are 40,000 listeners to the show each week, and that's not including uh, people that listen via the podcast. Shows are available as a podcast on Spotify and Apple, etc. All you do is just search for the Relax Back UK show, Relax Back, all one word, then a space, then UK. This week, the topic is something that affects millions of people, sometimes without them even knowing. It's diabetes. So dieting and eating the right food if you're a pre-diabetic can be very difficult indeed. Dr. Max Goland tells us about something that might make it a bit easier. Broccoli seems to be the top of the tree in terms of its glucoraphanin content. So what's good about glucoraphanin? Well, there's been over 3,000 scientific papers published in the last 30 years or so on glucoraphanin from broccoli, showing very, very clearly, Mike, that it has a lot of health benefits. Glucoraphanin and broccoli is good. Anthony Smith joins us as well. He was successful in not developing diabetes after being told he was pre-diabetic. Then listeners will know that I like technology and wearables, etc., and it turns out that they can be very handy for diabetic patients as well. So this is where okay. having data and being able to measure it, but also manage it, is going to be critical when you're, man- when you're dealing or helping a patient live with diabetes. Jade Dagger is the global leader at Roche Diabetics, and he explains how. So this is important stuff. So please do stay tuned. Thank you. that makes you feel good. Nagging pain. We at Alka-Cells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. Alka-Cells. Part of a network of 50 Regenex clinics worldwide, where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. Alka-Cells. Life is more beautiful with less pain. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. So we start off with Dr. Max Golan, who's an expert in diabetes, and Anthony, Anthony Smith. He was 
pre-diabetic. He was told by his GP that he was pre-diabetic and uh, that he needed to do something about it. And he did, in fact, manage to head it off at the pass. He didn't find it easy, but he was successful. So first off, I just got him to, him to confirm that that was indeed the case. Yes, that's true, yes. Fantastic. All right, guys, look, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Uh, Khan, I think the situation at the moment is if you get a, a warning that you're potentially pre-diabetic, most patients are then just told to change their diet and their lifestyle. Is that is that kind of pretty much the situation? That's that's what they're presented with. Is that that that's the situation, isn't it, Max? I see you nodding. It is. Um, I mean, the, the problem is that with, with pre-diabetics, if you like, most of them are indeed told exercise and make sure you have a decent diet, and not too much sugar in your diet. And sugar is bad to have in your diet, let's be honest. The problem is that most people don't really adhere to that. I don't know about you, Anthony, but a lot of people find it difficult. We know from uh, scientific trials that losing weight can make a massive difference to diabetes, entering diabetes. We also know that exercise can make a massive difference. So it is the correct way to go forward and to try and not enter diabetes territory because diabetes is it's a dangerous disease it's not as laissez-faire as people think it's 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 a nasty disease it can give rise to a lot of nasty things later in life yeah microvascular problems heart problems metabolic well, people syndrome. have you know feet amputated and uh, extreme eye problems and go blind yeah, yeah it's yeah. diabetes is really nasty and if you can avoid it uh, it's really worth avoiding. So it's kind of this strange dichotomy, isn't it? If people are told, right, you've got a pretty good chance of getting diabetes, you need to do this. But a lot of us don't do it. So, and, you know, most people are perfectly rational human beings and capable of thought. So what's going wrong, Max? Why don't we follow the advice? <laughs> well, you know, exercising, certainly as you get a little bit older, is not everyone's cup of tea. I mean, I love exercise and I go to the gym three times a week, etc. Uh, that doesn't mean to say I'll never get diabetes, but it will lower my risk without a doubt. Um, and eating healthily, again, it's too tempting. You know, too many high sugar, high fat processed foods. It's easy to get a takeaway pizza, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on. So yeah. it, it's, you know, exercise is only enjoyable to some people. In fact, a lot of people hate it. And eating unhealthily is actually quite nice to a lot of people. And both of those are bad things. And both of those are a recipe for disaster. Let's be honest. Of course. Well, let's bring in Anthony, because, you know, you've, you've been through this, haven't you, Anthony? So yes. did your doctor say to you, look, this is the situation. And uh, did you try and change your lifestyle and your habits of a lifetime? Well, I what would happen? I would I would have regular sort of blood tests done and then they would get my that would include the HbA1c test to test obviously for my blood, blood glucose levels. And I would get a text message saying you're pre-diabetic and there will be a link to an article to read. And I'm not blaming my GP or my GP surgery because they're very busy, but then there was never any, any follow-up. And I'd like to think, you know, I'm somebody who um, is, is quite well educated um, and, and fairly intelligent, but I, I never responded to really to those um, text messages. And they came, I'd, I'd read, but wouldn't follow it up. And it was only actually when I was, I'm well earlier this year and my GP suggested actually you know your uh, HbA1c um, levels are, are high it was 45 I found out subsequently it'd been higher at 46 um, you you 
in fact, at first they thought it was 45. And they said, actually, you may have gone up. You may be diabetic now. And I had another right. blood test. And that, um, so those are markers for diabetes. Yes. And actually, yeah. my the number had fallen to 43. I got right then. It was a wake-up call. And I thought, I have to do something about this. I can't rely on uh, my GP actually providing necessary support. So I um, actually began to read around the subject. And I understood for the first time, actually, what those numbers meant, those markers, the HbA1c scores. I think if somebody had taken some time perhaps to explain that to me and the significance of that and where I was, I would have actually probably done something earlier. Right. And, and so you, you you were scared into doing something then pretty much, I were was, you, Anthony? I was very scared because I, be, I became worried. I started to read about the consequences of some of the things you've mentioned already about, you know, heart disease, uh, you know, loss of, of, of limbs, um, sight loss. And in fact, I did have an appointment with my GP and she said I needed to find a new hobby. Um, you know, I couldn't spend all my time reading about diabetes, but that informed me about how I needed to to change things. And I, I, I I've now lost over four and a half stone in weight. Um, I've changed my diet. Um, I've, I eat very, uh, very rarely do I um, have um, carbohydrates in my diet. So I've cut up potatoes, rice, bread uh, most of the time. Um, and I've eaten much. I'm eating much more sensibly. I would believe before I was eating, you know, fairly healthily, but actually was it probably eating too much and not doing any exercise and that those things have made a huge difference. Right. So you, you took all this on board. Yes. And I, I, well, I, I can see you, 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 you know, you look fit and healthy uh, to me. Um, was that enough? No, unfortunately, it wasn't because um, I did uh, the blood test in, in, in February and then I repeated the test in May. And actually, I was going to a hospital appointment at the time and a text came through from my GP surgery saying you're still pre-diabetic and no explanation uh, for um, how pre-diabetic I was or whatever. So I actually contacted the surgery, had had a phone appointment and they told me my score had fallen to 42. So I thought, well, I've got to still do something else about this. And prior to that, I had joined um, the uh, NHS um, Diabetes Prevention Programme, which was something I'd heard about on the radio. I'd heard someone being interviewed about that and I, I so found radio out is that. a wonderful thing Anthony yes it was it was um, just <laughs> fortuitous I happened to listen to somebody speaking about it and decided to, to sign up for it again you know my GP surgery could have told me about the the diabetes prevention program that might have helped um, and then I read an article in the Times newspaper um, about um, this um, research that was being done using this soup with a very very high uh, levels of um, I think it's glucoraphanine uh, in in. Particular... I'm, re I'm really glad you pronounced that word first. I was kind of waiting, hoping one of you would. But this has been presented as kind of the, the cavalry charging in to help at, at the last minute. So, Max, I, I can see you nodding. Tell us, well, pronounce it one more time and kind of tell us what it is and what it does. Glucoraphanine. Okay. What? Okay. So, what is it and what does it do for us? Yes. Um, there is, okay, let, let me go back a little bit. There's been so much work done over many, many years on uh, glucoraphanin in broccoli. Broccoli is one of those so-called cruciferous vegetables amongst watercress, kale, bok choy, cabbage, etc. Broccoli seems to be the top of the tree in terms of its glucoraphanin content. So what's good about glucoraphanin? Well, there's been over 3,000 scientific papers published in the last 30 years or so on glucoraphanin from broccoli, 
showing very, very clearly, Mike, that it has a lot of health benefits. Um, a lot of epidemiological research, which is where they follow people over many years and look at their diet, um, has shown very clearly that high glucoraphanin stroke broccoli diets were associated with less cardiovascular disease, better control of blood sugar, i.e. anti-diabetes, mm-hmm. um, and also even protection against some uh, cancers like prostate cancer, for example. Um, so, so even though there is actually... a legal- this is the subject of you know peer-reviewed scientific papers it's not just some kind of massive punishment if you've been bad you've got to eat more broccoli Uh, broccoli isn't that bad (laughs) the broccoli soup i mean i've tasted it many times now the broccoli soup is actually a bit more like a vegetable soup and i think most people like vegetable soup but but going back to the glucoraphanin that seems to be the i wouldn't say magic ingredient but the key ingredient in broccoli so what uh, the Smarter Naturally um, company has done is to take um, uh, uh, to take broccoli and to actually make the glucoraphanin content higher and higher, just with a very simple breed- breeding program. I mean, it was originally discovered about forty years ago with Professor Mithen, who did, all, did who was doing his PhD. Um, so it's, it's not genetically modified broccoli. It's no, just certainly kind of not. No, breeding no, no. it, as it were. Yeah, no, selecting just, it. it it's just uh, it's just normal breeding techniques and so nothing to do with GM, certainly not. Um, and he found in Sicily uh, quite a high glucoraphanin content broccoli. And since that day, uh, with all the interest with the, uh, the superfood broccoli, with all the health benefits, um, we've ended up now um, with a very high, probably about five times the level of glucoraphanin as in normal broccoli. Um, how it works without boring people with too much science is when you eat the broccoli with the glucoraphanin, gets into the into the stomach, then into the gut. Um, you have bugs called the microbiome, the famous microbiome in your gut. That makes something called sulforaphane from the glucoraphanin. Okay, I don't want to get too deep, but it's the sulforaphane, which is actually the nutrient which actually gives us this these health benefits. Um, so if you eat this high glucoraphanin broccoli soup, because we've turned it into soup to make it much more manageable, much more uh, homogeneous or constant, um, you will actually get a good dose of sulforaphane. And that is the key nutrient which are, which are going to give you these health benefits, especially lowering the glucose level in your blood. Right. Which is so vital. All right. So back to Anthony. Uh, have you been doing this? Yes, I am. Um... As I read the article in the Times, I, I took part in a, in a trial for a month and then I signed up actually to buy the soup. So um, I've been having the soup weekly uh, since uh, June. And um, I did another um, HbA1c uh, test uh, last month. Um, the, the score had gone down from 42 to now 39. So technically, I'm now no longer pre-diabetic. OK, so what's what's the cutoff? Is the cutoff 40? It's, it's um, if I'm correct, it's it's 42, isn't it, Max? Yeah, it's about that. I think it's 42, 43. I mean, I tend to look at HbA1c in terms of percentage, but the, the trouble is you can get percentage millimoles or millimoles per mole. It can get very complex. But uh, the important thing is to get that blood sugar down back into a, a decent, you know, low level. And if you yeah, don't, right. then it's it's you know, let's let's welcome diabetes. This is the problem. While you've got the chance to control it, you should. Once you get into diabetes territory, it's a little bit more difficult to to come back. That's the problem. Yeah. 
All right, so Anthony, you're, you're having this this soup. Uh, how how often do you have to have it? Uh, just once a week. Okay, so it's not like something you have to have at every meal time no, at no, all. Once a week. All right, and so is it nice? What does it taste like? Actually, it's fine. Yes, I, I might eat broccoli regularly. It's it's not a vegetable I find particularly um, pleasant to, to, to eat. But actually, the soup is very pleasant. Um, I've not found it difficult to eat at all. Okay. Very palatable. And I, I, I suppose even if you didn't like it that much, the alternative is, <laughs> you know, diabetes or the odd bowl of soup that you're less fond of. Yes. There's no choice at all, really, yeah, is there? It's no brainer, to be quite honest. You know, it's very easy. Just have it for lunch once a week. Okay. So is there a cohort of people that are having this soup once a week and feeling the benefits? Because it sounds like, Anthony, you're quite good at seeking out cohorts of people that do stuff. I don't know. Max may have more information on that. <laughs> All right. Well, there's ahead, already Max. been trials done, I think, on about 12 people uh, over the last year or so. And every single one of them has got their HBAC level to go down within six months, which I have to say I found extraordinary. Um, can, can I just make one other point, Mike, because it's really Please important. Do. You know, we talked about uh, diabetes. Nobody wants to go there. But currently in the UK, there's about four million people in diabetic territory. They are diabetic. The problem is there's about 14 million people who are pre-diabetic. And it's those people, probably about 20 percent will enter diabetes in the next four or five years, according to uh, data. It's those 14 million people that really do need to somehow take action to try and prevent them getting into diabetic territory. Um, we have 4 million in diabetic territory now. That's going to rise to 5.5 million, even within the next three years. And that's that's really bad. This is, you know, it is really a big problem, diabetes right now, and it's getting worse. Right. So it's, it's, it's bad for the individual. But let's face it, it's bad for the NHS and really expensive for the NHS. 10 billion. That's how much it costs, roughly speaking, because, of course, not only is it treatment for diabetes, Mike, but also it gives rise to all these other problems we mentioned before. Retinopathy, capillaries at the back of the retina, um, you know, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome and even cancers are, are associated yeah. with diabetes. So we, we really do want people to take action themselves. Exercise. Better, better diet. And again, this soup, Smarter Naturally, is available on the website as well. And it can do wonderful things. Is, is there a way that people that might be on the verge of getting well, a, pre, a pre-diabetic and they don't yet know, is there a simple test? Can people go to their GP or go to a pharmacist and say, look, I'm worried I might be on the verge of being a diabetic. I'd like to know. What can yeah. they do? Yes, there are. Um, it, it, there are a number of tests, but the simplest is, is as Anthony has already uh, talked about, the HbA1c test. So what is that? It's basically a very simple blood test. Um, you can get kits to do it. Your doctor might do it. The doctor may not do it. The doctor may say, well, you know, you need to be sick to, to attend the surgery, which I think is a little bit negative because, you know, they are overworked. They're concentrating on the sick people. Yeah. Um, but there are tests available. You can get stuff on the internet, which is perfectly okay to look at HbA1c, and that can, can you measure. walk into a pharmacist and buy a test? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I personally am a great believer in people doing these tests. I know there are some people who are anti this because it will swamp the NHS. But no, there are so many things that tend to go a little bit awry as we get a bit older. And wouldn't it be great if we knew about these things a little bit earlier? So we could then take action. 
it's like anything. If, if you get it early enough, you can take action and actually remain healthy. No, uh, that, absolutely. I, I'm with you. Now, if people are listening to this and thinking, hmm, maybe I'm in this situation where I'm, I'm a pre-diabetic or they just know a diabetic and they want to get some more information because, you know, there's a lot of misinformation around in all sorts of health spheres. Where are some really good sources of information and also some inf information about the, the broccoli soup? Mm -hmm. Well, two things. First of all, information on diabetes. There's a wonderful website. If you just dial up Diabetes UK, that will take you to the uh, organisation in the UK. That will tell you virtually everything you need to know and a lot more on diabetes generally, uh, including the tests we just talked about. If you want to know more about this broccoli soup, which we've been discussing, if you just go onto Google, dial in Smarter Naturally, just Smarter Naturally, It'll be first up on the list. Just click it and it'll take you straight through to the website. And then if you want, you can purchase the product as well. Excellent. So look, Anthony and Max, thank you very much indeed for chatting because this, this is undoubtedly a very important topic. So, so many thanks. Pleasure. Thanks. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Nagging pain. We at Alka-Cells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. Alka-Cells, part of a network of 50 Regenex clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. Alka-Cells, life is more beautiful with less pain. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. The station that makes you feel good. Jade Dagger is a med tech expert and he's also the global leader at Rush Diabetes Care. I started my chat with him by asking him how big a problem is diabetes? Read numbers and the costs of diabetes. So Diabetes is a condition that is actually significantly increasing globally. In the UK itself, there's about 4.9 million people living with diabetes. So that's one in every 14 people in the United Kingdom. Goodness, so if someone is sitting on a bus on the way to work and there's 30 people on the bus, there's probably two of them with, uh, with diabetes. Very much so. And okay, so close to a million people in the UK are living with diabetes but are not diagnosed. Okay. So All this right. is so, this is staggering. Yeah, this is a, a massive problem. And so what about the cost of all this? The NHS spends about 10 billion dollars a year to manage diabetes. So that's about 10% of the overall budget of the NHS. Goodness. That, I mean that is that's just an eye-watering figure. Um 
Terrifying. All right. So another question. You alluded to it a little earlier, actually. Uh, but is this a worldwide issue or are we just particularly unfortunate in the UK? No, I mean, this This is truly a wild world, wild wide issue. Uh, the situation is there's about 540 million people worldwide that are living with diabetes. Uh, so despite the, despite the fact that we have a very good healthcare system in the UK, we're not spared. No. All right. Okay. So we, we've set up, there's a real problem to solve, to do something about. And uh, as a med tech ed expert, you can, you can help us. But I've got to say, this phrase med tech, I'm not sure, it's kind of new to me. Can you explain what, what that is? Definitely. So med tech stands for medical technology. You have the pharmaceutical industry that is responsible for medication. MedTech looks after medical devices and diagnostics. Okay, so as, as far as the work you 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 do, I, I was kind of thinking yeah. it's probably where wearables that we all know about from kind of sports and running watches that sort of thing uh, collides with medicine, and they kind of two are squished together to to make uh, MedTech devices. Yeah, so Mike, what we have for medtech industry is essentially we have do have the wearables that many of us are familiar with, but you also have devices that are used to measure blood glucose or devices that actually deliver insulin, and those are the insulin pumps. So that's right, in the okay. field of diabetes, that's more specialized um, devices that you have in the medtech industry besides the wearables, besides the digital apps or the digital platforms that are available as well to help people living with diabetes and their caregivers better manage the condition. Yeah, all right. So, so you mentioned kind of two, two sorts of devices there. One that will measure blood sugar levels. Um, so is that kind of implanted or do you strap that on when you wake up in the morning? How does, how does that work? There are different types of uh, blood glucose monitors. There's the traditional you know, device that actually you have to prick yourself, measure the blood, and do it on a single time use. Then you have the continuous glucose monitoring, which is a wearable. And depending okay. on your condition, depending on your discussions with your healthcare professional, one of those two devices will be prescribed to you and you will be using it. All right. So if, if, you're, if you've got this thing that measures your glucose levels all the time, and it's a wearable, how does that actually work? Because does does it have to get to the blood in your body somehow? Right. So essentially, there's a device that gets inserted inside of your skin, and that is the where you have a small needle that sticks inside of your skin, is measuring the either the blood sugar or the the tissues around the, where the skin is inserted. That device okay. is either continuous, with other, which means it's continuously measuring your blood glucose level, or flash, which means it's different times in the day. You flash your device next to that inserted device, and you get the actual measurements of the blood. Sure. Okay. So, th so this thing, can you attach that to yourself or insert it yourself, or is it a doctor that does that? No, once you're trained, you will be able to insert it yourself. Oh, okay. So you, you, you insert it and what, it stays there for, for a few days until it runs out or a few months? How does it work? Typically, it's about 10 to 14 days. That's the duration of the insertion. And then you need okay. to replace it. Okay. And that stays there while you're asleep and you know while, while you're having a shower, while you're doing everything? 
As much as possible, yes. I mean, it's supposed to stay there, and that's the technology advancement. I mean, uh, depending on how active you are, if you're a child, if you're swimming too much, if you're actually doing a lot of sports, it may get dislodged. But otherwise, yes, it should be staying there. Yeah, okay. All right. So this thing is with you, collecting data either all the time or a few times a day. Um, so I guess the next question is, where does all this data go? Uh, this is the important question because measuring the blood glucose is one thing. However, what you're doing with the data is what matters. So essentially, the data can actually reside on the device itself. So you have an app linked to this device. But more importantly, if you want proper care for people living with diabetes, it's important for this data to actually make it to the healthcare providers. So the team, the healthcare team, can actually take better informed decisions around the condition that this patient is living with. Right. Okay. So, so it sounds like the data allows decisions to be made both in, in the very short term. So if the patient uh, sees that you know blood sugar levels are going very low, quick, you need to do something. You need to eat something. Um, so that you know that has a, a feedback in, in like minutes. That's right. It's a feedback loop, and it's important for the healthcare team to actually see the trends of your blood uh, glucose level, not just a one time in po uh, one point in time, but actually continuous and over time, to be able to right. assess truly how you're doing and how you're managing with your diabetes. Okay, and does, so over time, presumably, this allows the patient to really change their their lifestyle change what they do, change, I don't know, when they exercise, when they get up, when they work, and when they eat. See, having access to this data gives you a full picture of the health and the condition of the person living with diabetes. And it's important for the healthcare team to be able to monitor this over time so they can make the right decisions, be it lifestyle changes, uh, medication adjustments, titrations, uh, or different interventions that may be required for each person. So this is where okay. having data and being able to measure it, but also manage it, is going to be critical when you're man when you're dealing or helping a patient live with diabetes. Right. Uh, earlier in the chat, you mentioned that there was an another sort of device that can inject insulin. Um, Yes. Is that right? Did that's right. That's, that's called an insulin delivery system or the insulin pump. So this is primarily for, for people who have been living with diabetes for a while or are type 1 diabetics and require insulin injection to be able to manage the blood glucose level. All right. So can the, the, uh, the monitor can talk to this device and, um, you know, automatically you'll get injected with insulin at the right time. Is that is that how it works? There are different ways of doing it. One is actually measuring your own blood glucose and adjusting the insulin amounts as needed. That, I would say, is the majority of, pay, of people living with diabetes today. However, sure. similar to what we discussed around data, uh, the new approach of actually innovation in terms of the, in, in the field of diabetes is how can you integrate the, the blood measurement, the insulin level measurements, and then be able to adjust the, your insulin without having the person living with diabetes do the adjustment themselves. So this is the integrated loop that is now 
becoming more of an innovation and actually leads to better outcome for patients living with diabetes. Because essentially what it's doing is it's acting and responding almost instantaneously to deliver the right level of insulin as you need right. it. And so, all right, so there's, so there's kind of, um, the patient is out of the loop. I mean, it's all happening to the patient and the patient has been monitored, but they, they don't actually make any decisions uh, or have to do anything. It just kind of happens. Actually, it's a very interesting play on words because it is called the closed-loop closed system. So the point is the patient or the person living with diabetes may be thought about as not being involved. However, it's crucial that the person living with diabetes remains engaged with their condition and be aware of where they are in their journey so they can have an active discussion with their caregivers because it's a collective team approach that actually leads to better outcomes with diabetes. But yes, to sure. your point, there's less of an intervention with the person living with diabetes that is required as the new technology comes into play. All right. So describe to us a little bit uh, this device that can deliver insulin. Is, is this, this is another kind of wearable, um, is it? Or do you kind of strap that on when you wake up in the morning? How does that work? No, it is a wearable and it's a device that you will have to wear, you know, almost 24 hours a day. So essentially, it is a device that is also inserted in, in your abdomen, for example, example, and it measures the insulin levels or the blood levels in your body. So as the measurements of the blood glucose levels are measured, be it through a, uh, you know, a blood glucose monitor, the response to the device itself, the insulin pump, is whether you need additional insulin, for example, that leads mm -hmm. to insulin being injected into the body itself, or the, the person living with diabetes is the one injecting the insulin as required. But it's a wearable that has to stay on the patient for pretty much 24 hours a day, unless they're taking it off for activities or showers and what have you. Yeah. All right. So this this insulin pump, how, how how big is it? And you know, where do you put it? You put it on your abdomen or your arm? Yeah. I mean, there are different types and different sizes. Um, the newer versions are becoming smaller and smaller. So right now, it's probably the size of half of a uh, cell phone, but slightly bulkier. It is mm -hmm. typically inserted around the abdomen for the most part because you need the tissue to be able to stick it to a place where there's less movement and certainly for it to hold. Uh, so that's the pump itself. Few, I mean, the newer pumps are slightly less inconvenient where you have less tubes around the pump itself, so it becomes more convenient for individuals who are active. If you're doing a lot of sports, for example, um, the newer pumps can actually serve for that purpose. But the function of the pump is more or less the same, whereby you're measuring the blood glucose, and then as required, you are the pump is actually dispensing or injecting the right amount of insulin needed to, to, to manage your condition. Fantastic. I mean, it sounds like this technology can just make a massive difference to people's lives. You know, this, this is going to turn people's lives around, isn't it? So, Mike, it's important that actually people living with diabetes or all of us to have proper diagnosis and actually detect whether we are prone to becoming diabetics or not early enough. Because the early interventions, be it lifestyle changes or treatments, 
or devices like we're talking about actually leads to an improved outcome. So yes, the new technology that we have today is doing you know quite a bit of uh, impact and change for people living with diabetes. But the important thing here is that the sooner a patient or person is diagnosed with diabetes, the better the outcome because better interventions can be applied as part of the journey. Sure. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about that, actually. As um, What we've been talking about so far is treatment, but can this kind of technology help with um, avoidance in the first place? You know, is it useful to pre-diabetics? It's, I mean, you can certainly use the blood glucose monitor to measure your blood sugar and see where you are on, you know, on the progression towards diabetes if you're prone to it. However, that's not necessarily a recommended use of the blood glucose monitors. A better approach would be to actually have the regular checkups with your healthcare provider, do the proper blood tests, and look at your history and also your whether you're, you're, you've got conditions or predisposed conditions to become a person living with diabetes. And that could be oh. your age, your weight, family history, medical history, your ethnicity, all of those are preconditions for potentially becoming a person living with diabetes. Okay. So, as we said at the start, you know, this, this is affecting or will potentially affect an awful lot of people. So if people are listening to this and thinking, hmm, I need to find out a bit more, make myself a little bit more aware of the risks, etc. where's a, a good information source for them? Yeah, I mean, there's a very good source in the UK called Diabetes UK. It's a charitable organization, and it has quite a bit of information and resources to learn more about the disease. If you are already living with diabetes, it gives you, you know, suggestions and resources in terms of how better to manage your condition. And it's also, you know, describes in detail the different types of diabetes and what it means and how you can go about getting treatment and support for your condition. The other site is probably the NHS Diabetes. Uh, That's a very reliable source. And I would say also the Roche Diabetes Care UK site has a lot of information for both patients and their healthcare providers that certainly you can tap into it and get additional resources as needed. Okay, three good sources there. So, uh, Jay, thank you very much indeed for chatting. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mike. A big thank you to the guests on this week's show, and they were Dr. Max Goland, who's an expert in diabetes, Anthony Smith, he was a, a pre-diabetic who managed to head diabetes off at the pass uh, using uh, diet and exercise, and Jade Dagger, a medtech expert and also global leader at Roche Diabetes Care. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.